Church family, back, back when I was in high school, my junior year of high school, there is only one, uh, uh, contrary to what some may think, oh, pastor may be real competitive, I'm sure, there's only one sports loss I've ever experienced that still legitimately just nags at me today. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, our football team, we, we got the, the last playoff spot in our district. And in the first game, we played the number three ranked team in state. We were not expected to win. We were losing 19 to nothing with three minutes left in the third quarter. We won 21 to 19. It was awesome. We were riding high. We got to the next round of the playoffs. Playing this team, it's third quarter. We're winning. We're better than this team. We lose. Uh, for a variety of factors, most of which is we just as a team kind of laid down and died. We just kind of quit. It still irks me to this day. And here's why I tell you that. When, when you know, you, you play these late night Friday night games, some of you know how this is. You, you get home and it's the last football game of the season. You've just had this heartbreaking loss and I just am struggling. I mean, I don't want to go to bed. I, you know, it's one in the morning and so dad sees that I'm up. He says, hey, come here. Uh, you need to watch a movie. We're going to watch a movie. I said, what? So we're going to watch Big Jake. Now, some of you know what Big Jake is. I said, and this will help some of you out here going, what's Big Jake? That's what I said. What's Big Jake? He said, it's a John Wayne movie. And all you need to know is that when it ends, the bad guys lose and they lose good. <laughs> and you just need to see the bad guys lose and lose good. And you'll feel a little better about life. And I say that to, to provide some humor, but to simply say this, church family, the reality is we are living in a world where it seems almost a, a constant stream more and more that evil does triumph, that the bad guys do win, that the good guys seem to be small and weak and get crushed, and there is a despair that will keep you up at night and will drive you into decisions that are poor decisions to make. There is a despair that is there unless you know that at the end of it all, evil and wickedness loses and loses good. Amen. So I invite you with me to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. And as only in the Lord's timing, as we're gathered here this morning on Christmas Eve, and we'll come back and have a Christmas Eve service tonight where we look at the first coming of Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the second coming of Christ. It's where we happen to be in Revelation. I, I was given this stat yesterday. I didn't know this. This was uh, my grandfather gave this to me. But for every one verse in the Old Testament that refers to the first coming of Jesus, there are eight verses which reference the second coming of Jesus. And so I join with me, Revelation 19, and look with me here in verse 7. It says, let us rejoice, or back up into verse 6, hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, the one who is sovereign and possesses all control over reality, the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. So let us rejoice, be glad, and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. If you remember back to last week, John has just seen the woman Babylon, this picture of the wicked system of the world, or, or maybe even more precisely, this wicked religious system of the world that has opposed God's, God, has opposed God's people, has persecuted God's people. Doom comes to Babylon, and there's this cry of praise in heaven that is so loud 
John describes it as a mixture of the loudest peals of thunder with the cascading, overwhelming noise of a waterfall mixed together. There is this cry of hallelujah that results in a praise. The Lord God, the one who is almighty, he, he reigns, the sovereign reigns. And it says, and, and it leads to this praise as Jesus, the bridegroom, is now returning for the bride. That's the imagery we left on last week. And it would be natural as we move forward here this week for, for us to expect the, the setting to be that of a wedding. Well, look what it says. It says, and I saw heaven opened. Or I saw that heaven had been opened and was now remaining open forevermore. The tense of the verb open there is, is, is not just simply saying I saw heaven open. That, that's happened a time or two in scripture. The tense is that heaven has now been opened and it's not going back. There's a new day that has arrived this moment. They saw heaven open and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are, are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now drop down to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. All of a sudden, John after seeing this cry of praise in heaven at the doom of Babylon, after hearing the cry that the bridegroom is, is coming for the bride, all of a sudden the imagery shifts and what he sees now, what he sees in, in real time in the world is not the bridegroom coming in his finest suit. What he sees now is the bridegroom coming as he actually is, the sovereign conquering king. He says, I saw one sitting on a white horse. Well, a horse is the animal that a king sits on when they ride out to war. Not just riding out to war, but this horse is white, and white certainly symbolizes a purity, a holiness, a spotlessness, but it's also for victory. The one who rides this horse is the king. He is a king of a kingdom of holiness and purity, of righteousness, and he rides to victory. In the first coming, Jesus rode a donkey in humility. In the second coming, Jesus rides a donkey as the king of king, or a horse as the king of kings and lord of lords, coming to display his reign and bring it in full. It says his name, and remember, name in scripture. Sometimes it may just be what someone's called, but, but, but in the context here, he, his name is faithful and true. Name is a reference to a person's character, their, their very nature. When it says his name is faithful and true, it means Jesus, who Jesus is, he is faithful and true. He is trustworthy, dependable. He is genuine, authentic. He is faithful and true, God Almighty. He is faithful and true to be consistent with who God is. He is faithful and true to every last word that God says. He is faithful and true to be exactly who he presents himself to be in his word. He is faithful and true to 
bring about and fulfill every last promise made in the covenant. He is faithful and true to Himself at His word. To He is. It says He, in righteousness, He judges and wages war. Now, it says He judges and wages war. These are certainly not characteristics of Christ. We like to throw up on all the on all the names we might throw up at Christmas time or the banners at Easter pageant that have the names of God. Uh, we, we don't often put, uh, he, is, he is the righteous judge and warmonger. But yet it says here that in righteousness he judges, he brings justice, he condemns sin and wickedness for the real reality of what it is, and he serves a just punishment to the forces of evil that are hostile and at war with him. He wages war in righteousness, and here's what's key. Because in the weeks to come, we'll see what God's righteous judgment, we'll even see a little bit of it today, looks like. And it might be tempting in today's culture to go, ooh, pastor, wow, you should have thought better about preaching that on Christmas Eve. That's a little harsh. I want to be clear. It says in righteousness, he judges and wages war, which means this church family, there is no judgment of Jesus Christ that is ever harsh. Only right, fair, and just. Whatever judgment Jesus brings down on any individual is righteous, fair, and just because he cannot exercise judgment apart from doing it righteously, meaning just, impartial, fair. It says in righteousness he judges in wages war. It says on his, his eyes are a flame of fire. We've seen this imagery before, a flame of fire. It, it certainly can speak of, uh, of judgment, but it carries more than that. Jesus' eyes, a flame of fire. He sees and knows all things. There is nothing hidden from the knowledge and gaze of Christ. He knows all things actual. He knows all things possible. He knows every deed and every word said in public and everything you and I try to hide and keep in private. He knows it all. And his eyes of fire see right through it and can judge what is right and what is not. There is no hiding from his all-knowing, all-seeing eyes. It says on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And in this case, diadems are a royal crown. They are a crown that doesn't, they're not like the gold medal, the victor's wreath crown. That's what those of us in Christ get for finishing. No, this is a royal crown, a crown of majesty, a crown that declares he's king. And Unlike prior in the book of Revelation where Satan and even the Antichrist are said to have a finite limited number of crowns, seven, ten, they are mere imposters whose appearance of power is limited and finite. No, when it describes Jesus, it doesn't give the number of His crowns because they are without number. He is eternally King, exalted says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And this is an interesting little statement. There's a variety of ways our minds might be prone. A robe dipped in blood. Well, all throughout Revelation and obviously all throughout Scripture, we speak of the lamb who was slain, who shed his blood. It's by the shed blood of Christ that salvation can be known. But it's interesting. While certainly it may allude to that, that's not the precise, that's not whose blood is in view here. You see what What's being reflected is actually straight out of Isaiah 63, where in Isaiah 63 it speaks of God coming in victory at the end on His day, and it speaks of His robes being stained in the blood of His enemies. Now realize what that's saying here. 
Jesus' victory over sin, evil, wickedness, and death is so certain that He is riding into battle with a robe already stained by the blood of His enemies that He's riding to conquer. It's so certain it's already done, and it's already done because victory was achieved at the cross where the Lamb shed His blood for you and I. A robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being by the Word. To be the Word of God means Jesus is the perfect and final revelation of God to all mankind. What is God like? Jesus. He's not just an an appearance of God, He he is God. To be the Word of God means He is God. It means He is the power of God in creation. It means He is the doer of God's will. It means He is the piercer of man's hearts. He is called the Word of God. It says in verse 15, from His mouth a sharp sword. That imagery easily makes us think of the book of Hebrews. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the division between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. The Word of God is able to pierce things in, in, in the human heart. The human heart, which Scripture says is deceitful above all things, and no person can even know their own heart. But the Word of God, the sword which comes out of the mouth of the Word of God, can pierce even the deepest places. And in this context, the Word of God is, comes out of His mouth, and it's from the Word that it says He rules the nations with a rod of iron, meaning the, the nations which currently rage. They rage against one another. They rage against the Lord. There comes a day where by the sheer power of God's Word, He will rule them. He will bring them into, in, in, into, into, uh, into His rule. He will bring them into submission with a rod in fulfillment of Psalm 2. He will strike down the nations. He will cease the hostility. And as much as we may not like it, it says Jesus who shed His blood out of love for mankind, it also says, He who judges rightly will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Jesus will be the one that pours out the wrath of God, and He is worthy of it because He's already received all of it on the cross for mankind. The fierce wrath of God is that opposition, that settled opposition of God against all things sin and all those who choose sin over God. And when we choose sin over God, when we stand by nature in our own unrighteousness, Scripture is never dishonest. The wages, the fair, just payment for a life of sin is death. Romans 5 or 6.23 says, Jesus deals with sin and on his robe and on his thigh, the thigh, the place where the sword was to make war. A name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not a king. He's not a king who's better than some kings. He is the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords, period. This is who he is. This is what he does, but it's not just this. Look back at verse 14. See whom he leads. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And we say, well, who are these armies? Very well could be angels. But in this very chapter, we were told who wears the white linen just a few verses prior. We saw it last week. Those who wear fine, the fine white linen are the saints clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which was lived out in our lives. Who are the armies following behind Christ? Brother and sister, if you're in Jesus, it's you and me. John sees this picture. The bridegroom is coming back from the bride. The day has come. The final chapter of the script of human history is here. The heavens are opened at a new time, and Jesus is coming, the conquering king, faithful and true, the righteous judge, king of kings and lord of lords. And who's behind them? All of us in Christ. Now, you'll notice here in a moment we're just there for the joy of it all. We don't do any fighting. Jesus does it all. This is who He is and what He does. And look at, look at the result of how this plays out. It's on this basis. Look at verse 17 with me. John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble! For the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both freemen and slaves, and small and great. Here's somewhat rather grotesque in, in the language, but here's what John sees. An angel, an angel issues a call out to all the, the scavenger birds of prey and says, get ready because you're about to have a feast on the bodies of all of those who oppose Christ riding into this war. It says, get ready. And then it says this, I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So all of a sudden now there's been this issue, birds, get ready. And then he sees the army, he sees the army of the forces of the Antichrist all assembled, ready to go against and oppose Christ. The, the epic battle of uh, beyond anything Hollywood could put together is here. And then look what it says. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest, meaning the kings and the commanders and the, the mighty men and the, and, the, and the people who make up the army, the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Here, here comes the moment. John sees the moment. The forces of the Antichrist of darkness, they're assembled. Jesus riding the white horse coming down. You're ready for this clash, except there's no clash. Paul puts it this way in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 when speaking about the Antichrist whom he refers to as the man of lawlessness. He says, on that day, the Lord will defeat him with a breath. Here's what happens. Jesus rides down, and this is how the battle goes. And it's over. And I... And I I don't mean that in any way to be trite. That's, that's what it says. There is no battle. 
the most powerful, most satanically empowered ruler the world will ever see. He is seized by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not seized, not, not escaped, seized alive. And he and his false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, the place of God's eternal wrath and punishment. They are thrown alive, meaning they are consciously aware of the wrath of God poured out on them. They are thrown alive to do no more damage. Those who made up their armies, they are all, it says, all of them are killed by the word of Jesus. It's done. Not only that, but look with me at the next few verses. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss, a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now we'll come back to this passage. We're not covering all of that today. I simply read it so you understand this. When Jesus descends out of heaven, there is no force of wickedness that stands up. All fall. So church family, understand today clearly. The point is, Jesus comes back and Jesus wins, period. Jesus comes back, Jesus wins, church family. What an unbelievable, glorious ending. There's no question to how the story ends. There's, despite all of the, the plot points and threads that, that seem so evil and wicked now and spiraling both in front of us and, in, and behind us, it doesn't matter how many plot threads run different directions. The script is finished. This is how it ends. And so here is the question for all of us. If this is how it ends, how does that reality change me now? That's biblically what hope is. Shared that last week. Hope is not wishful thinking. I wishfully think Jesus would come back and set all things right. There's no wishfully think. There's no wishful thinking here. Just guaranteed. Hope is something that is absolutely certain that is yet to happen in my present, but it is guaranteed in my future. And because it is guaranteed, it drives and impacts how I live and move and breathe and what I allow to influence how I make decisions now. That's hope. That's hope, church family, is if we know the end, how does it impact now? Do, do we take Jesus seriously for who he is? He is faithful and true, means he is who he is, not who I want him to be or fear him to be. He is who he is, means my interpretation or someone else's interpretation doesn't get to determine who he is. He's not faithful and true to my version of him, to my fears of him, or to some who disbelieve him. He's faithful and true to himself, the perfect revelation of, of God to man. He is faithful and true to every last word. When he tells you that yesterday was a horrible day and you felt like you felt on every account or your grief was so overwhelming you couldn't move and surely there could be no more mercy for you, his word says his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Faithful and true, you know what that means? It means you can wake up the day after your worst day and you can be guaranteed his mercies are faithful and true that day. 
faithful and true. What does his word say? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Lord, these circumstances are so hard. They seem to grind me down and crush me, and, 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 and I can't do it. I, I can't stand on my own two legs. And faithful and true means, you know what? Don't stand on your own two legs. Fall, child of God, on your face, because his grace is, in fact, sufficient, and he will, in fact, perfect his power in your weakness. Why? Because he's faithful and true. Here's the reality, church family. One day, you and I, this day he returns for us. If you're in Christ, this is a great day. This is the greatest day. And you and I will see him as he really is. I hope when we see him, we'll be able to say, oh, Lord, you're exactly as I imagined you trusting your word and not, oh, Lord, you really are as good as you said in your word. I am so sorry I wouldn't trust. I'm so sorry I really didn't believe your mercies were new, your grace was sufficient. I'm so sorry I, I didn't really believe and grasp that you really do desire to give life and life abundantly. He's faithful and true. He's all-knowing, church family. Do you realize he knows our very depths? There are things as we are in a relationship with God that we may think, I'm not gonna bring that up. I, I, I don't want the Lord to know that. I may try to hide that. Why? There's no lying to God or hiding anything from Jesus. He sees you and me in our entirety. And when we were naked and in total shame of sin, out of his love, he died for us. Do you realize, church family, his eyes of flaming fire, certainly that should convict me that there's no hidden things in my life, but oh, the joy and the love to realize that he knows and sees me at my worst and still wants me? I'll praise. Do we, do we take him seriously for who he is? The word of God. It's a perfect revelation of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Almighty, the sovereign. Understand, church family, my hope, my allegiances cannot be to the people that seem sovereign in this world, for there is no one in this world who is sovereign. No president, no king, no CEO, no principal, no boss. There is one who is sovereign. Oh, I love this, name only known to himself. I skipped it earlier, but says that he has a name written that no one else knows. It's an interesting statement, and you'll, you'll find roughly three, three opinions on, on what could be there. One is that the, the name is a name that previously was unknown, but that for those of us in Christ after Jesus returns as a part of what it means to be in Christ and, and to bring us into even greater intimacy, it's a name he shares with us, and there's uh, so, some, some warrant for that. There's some who would say that when you, when you look at ancient mythology, especially around the time John's writing, there was this idea that if you as a human knew the true name of a god, you possessed power over them. So the fact that Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself is the ultimate statement that no human being has power over Christ. He does not submit to our will. He does not play our manipulative games to try to sway him to give us what we want. Why? Because he is God 
and no one has mastery over God but himself. Means we need to not try to play manipulative games with God. But there's also a third aspect that, I, that, it, that is true. You see, Jesus reveals God perfectly, and you can know, we can know and love and walk with Jesus truly. We can know, and what we know of Jesus is real because He is the authentic, genuine God. But while we can know Him truly, understand, church family, none of us even after all eternity, will ever understand Him fully because He is God. He is Creator. We are created. A name that only Himself, only God knows Himself fully. He is so much grander and greater than we can ever imagine. He is victor. Church family, there is victory. There is victory over sin. There is the ability to say no to temptation. There is, there is justice that is coming. Are you tired of seeing? Does it weigh you down to see evil and wickedness and, and, and sinners triumph? It should, church family. It should weigh on us. And guess what? There's a day coming where justice is brought, and it will be permanent. Do we relate to him on the basis of who he is? Do, do, we, do we walk with him? church family on the basis of who he is and what he does as, as he really is despite our present fears. Gosh, is God really in control? Look at the chaos in my life. Look at the chaos in the world. How are things getting so bad? Where is God? Does the gospel still work? Will people still respond? We have to relate to him on the basis of who he is, church family, on who he is and what he does despite our present fears. Despite our present temptations, if we really believe he's faithful and true, do we, when he says sin kills, do we seek to flee sin and temptation? When he says that we need to forgive as he's forgiven us, do we forgive those who's wronged us? When he convicts that I've wronged someone else, am I willing to leave my offering there before the Lord to go apologize to that person and as much depends on me, said it right? Or do I allow the temptations of the day? Jesus isn't really, Jesus isn't really like that. Jesus is just, Jesus is just a, a real lovey-dovey Santa Claus kind of guy. He just wants you to feel good. That's what we mean by Jesus' love. Do, do I capitulate my understanding of Jesus to something of the world versus his word? Do, do, I, do I capitulate to my own pride which says, oh man, I don't really want to, That'd be kind of humiliating to, to literally get up during the invitation because I know the Spirit's saying there's someone I need to apologize to. That'd be, real, that'd be really embarrassing to get up and go out and handle that. I just, you know, I, I'll get to it eventually after the holidays. Do I capitulate to my pride? Church family, this is Jesus. This is who, this passage shows us who Jesus is. This is who we worship. This is what we are about as a church, which is why we don't capitulate as a church to just our preferences for what our we think our church ought to be like. We don't exist for our preferences. We exist for His glory. Amen. And whether it's us in this room singing praise to God in worship 
or whether it's the life we live out in the world, do our lives look and sound like this is the Jesus we worship? Because they should. This is who Jesus is. Church family, if we're in Christ, it, it means we must rejoice in the greatness and goodness of who he is. It means, church family, if we know this is who Jesus is and how, how it all ends, my decisions today should not be dictated by fear, by capitulation, by pride, by preference, but by worship of the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Now there's a, a second part of this application. What I've shared is for those of us who've responded by grace through faith to Jesus Christ. By God's grace, we've been saved through a response of faith at the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we're sinners. But there may be some in this room or watching online that, that, that do not know Jesus Christ. You may not know Jesus Christ and you know you don't know Jesus. You may not know Jesus Christ but think you do, but your faith is in all your works. You've never actually repented and asked Jesus who he is to save you. And I wanna be clear today because a passage like this is, is very clear. There's great news, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will bring justice to all sinners and their sin. Now I wanna be clear, here is reality. God is holy, God is love, and God is just. The reality is Jesus returns and sin is judged. But understand the point of knowing that is not some turn or burn scare tactic on God's part. The terror of God does not lead to salvation according to Scripture. It's the kindness of God, Romans 2, which leads human beings to repentance. And His kindness is clearly expressed. Listen, here's the good news if you don't know Christ or if you've got family members, friends that don't know Christ, here's the good news. Currently, we live in between the first and second coming. The first coming has happened. We, the mystery of the gospel has been made clear. The day of salvation is now. We're not left wondering, how can I be made right with God and my sin washed away and, and brought into a life of, of wholeness and harmony and peace? We know, by grace through faith, Jesus Christ. The good news is we're living in between, but here's the urgent news. He is coming back. And once you breathe your last breath or he returns, whichever comes first, there is no longer the opportunity to respond to the kindness of Jesus Christ, which is daily expressed in his patience with all of humankind, even as the world chooses to disbelieve the gospel they hear over and over again. Jesus could have ridden a white horse down into the garden and ended all of humanity and been totally righteous and just to do it. Yet he didn't ride down on a white horse. Instead, God made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And thousands of years later, as one born in the fullness of time to a young virgin girl, Jesus came in fulfillment of that promise. By the way, Jesus, it's well known, has fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. The odds of fulfilling only eight 
Old Testament prophecies are one in 10 to the 17th power. You say, well, what's that look like, Pastor? Well, it looks like taking silver dollars, covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, marking one of them with a Sharpie, throwing it in at random and shuffling it all, taking your best friend, blindfolding them, and then picking that one out on the first try. That's the odds of 10 to the 17th power. It's impossible. But Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled over 300. The evidence of creation testifies that there is a God who created this world who is almighty in power. His word gives us the specifics of who he is and his heart for mankind that God is not slow as some count slowness, but the reason that Christ has not returned yet is that he is patient, wishing that none should perish and all should respond to his offer of salvation by which he saves through it by his grace and it's received through faith. And that's the good news for today. And so if you don't know Christ and the Holy Spirit's piercing your heart, you're a sinner. You're out of relationship with God. Can I tell you, friend, you can meet Jesus today. You go to him in prayer. God, you're right, I'm a sinner. And I cannot save myself no matter how much I do. I understand, Jesus, you are fully God and fully man. You came, you lived the life I failed to do, you died the death I rightly deserve, and you have risen again. And so I am trusting you, I am asking you to save me on the sole basis of who you are, what you've done, and the fact that you've said, if I will ask you in faith to save me, you in your grace would do so. However you want to express that in prayer, you can, do, you can meet Jesus today. In a moment, we'll have an invitation. Pastors and I will be down front. We're happy to talk to you. But understand, there is no uncertainty how it all ends. Several years ago, two brothers were, were hired to do something unprecedented in movie history. They were hired to write the, the final uh, Marvel movies to 21 movies, 21 different plot threads. And it was, people would enter, how, how did you do this? How did you, how did you write these final two movies? How did you decide what decisions to do? Who lives, who dies, how all this plays out? How did you, and they said, look, we didn't know any of what we were gonna do. That's what they said. We knew one thing when we started. We knew for sure how it would end. And because we knew what the ending was supposed to be, it dictated every decision we made to get there. Church family, we know how it ends. We must, if you are in Christ, if we must allow the reality of how it ends to dictate how we live and move and breathe today, which is not as a people of despair, but hope. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. You are worthy. And Lord, your word's just clear, you're coming back. And Father, all too often I find in my own life decisions are controlled by fear, worries, doubt, temptation, pride. 
when the reality is, Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no place in my life as your son for the decisions I make in the worship of my life to be driven by anything else other than the knowledge of who you are, what you've done, and what you're coming back to do. So, Father, for those of us in this room who know you, may we respond uh, however you would have us respond. If there's any in this place or online who do not know you, Lord, may they hear what, what, I, what, what we walk through in the Scripture today. It, it's, it's not a fairy tale. It's not how we hope it could possibly end. Lord, there's coming a day. This is what is going to happen. And all of us will have a day we stand before you. If there's any in this room who do not know you, then I simply just ask that they would respond to your conviction and know the sweet joy and love of your salvation. Jesus, we look to you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.